Okay, my friends, welcome to Think Jewish. I actually want to start with two very good announcements. Number one, my friend Leo Wauntraub, who listens to this fire recording, has an online magazine called Just Jew It. That's Just Jew It. And you have here the card, and I just want you to know that she actually took the Bereshit, the one on Let There Be Light, and God said Let There Be Light, and she actually printed it, well, printed it. She, it's a, it's a uh, <laughs> internet um, magazine. And here are copies. She actually uh, probably wrote it better than I said it. So, uh, guys, she asked me also to give, let you know you can get these cards and uh, you type in and there's a special code that you can actually get a free subscription and back at a card. And it's her seventh, her seventh uh, issue. So I just wanted to let you know about that, that that's available. You can also actually hear the class. She made a link to actually hear the class online. Another beautiful piece of news is that tonight, after the class, I'm going to give everyone a Tanya. This Tanya was printed in City Hall in honor of 200 years since the founder of Lubavitch, the author of the Tanya, um, his yard site. So we actually, last year before Shavuos, we went to City Hall. We had a whole big event to go ahead and actually print it. And then finally, I got it back from the binder. So everyone will receive one. And uh, that's our gift to you. Okay, with that said, I just want to uh, thank and mention our sponsors. Our dear friend Dahlia has uh, sponsored the refreshments today. And thank you very much in honor of her sister-in-law's birthday. May they be blessed with children and all the good stuff. And also, um, Mrs. Fortuna Capel also sponsored this class and the recording and the online uh, upload and all. So uh, we want to thank her too. She also listens to this via um, the SoundCloud. Okay, today's topic, today's title is based on the story of last week's Torah portion that we're going to talk about. And it's called Pray for evil what does that mean pray for evil what are we what are we talking about so let's go over the story okay the Torah tells us that after the three angels visited Abraham right first God visits him and does the mitzvah of visiting the sick because it was after his circumcision and he was in pain and recovering from that operation remember he was hundred years old 99 years old and Avram is visited by God for what we call Bikur Cholim. And then all of a sudden three angels show up. And the three angels do each one a different job. One is there, Malach Rafael, the Malach of healing, is there to heal Avraham from his circumcision. Malach Michael, the angel of kindness. That's why Sfaradim actually give uh, charity in the number 101. And I never understood why until a Sephardic person actually explained to me that if you add up the numerical value of the word Michael, which is the angel of kindness, which is the minister of the Jewish nation, it equals to 101. So very often they give those numbers, 101, you'll always see. But uh, what happens? He's there to, pray, to bring them the good news. What's the good news? That next year at this time, Sarah will have a son. Correct. He will get pregnant and have a son. And then there's the other Malach, which is Gavriel, whose job actually wasn't by Avraham. His job was actually by Sodom and Amora to turn over the entire continent over there. What happens now? What happens is that the verse tells us that as the angels are taking leave from Avraham, one angel returns to heaven. He has no more business to do. Who is that? 
Malach Michael, he's done. Two angels still have business to do. Malach Rifael, who's healing, has to save Lot, which is the concept of healing. So we're going to use Malach Rifael. And then Malach Gavriel is the one that's going to turn over the five cities, the five Krachim. So as the two are walking away, God in the verse, it's, you see God, you know, when you write the, uh, the omniscient uh, POV, when you write a story, so you're writing also the thoughts. Uh, if your narrator is someone who's I or you in the story, you can't have that because how do they know what the other person's thinking? But when you write from God's point of view, where you know all thoughts, you write thoughts. And all of a sudden the Torah takes that type of narration. And all of a sudden he's telling us what God's thoughts are. And God's thinking, am I to keep hidden from Abraham what I'm about to do? And uh, Rashi gives us two interpretations why he says he shouldn't. Number one, I gave him this land. How can I destroy it without his permission? And number two, I made him Avraham, which means the father of a multitude of nations, which, which includes these people that I'm about to kill. How can I kill them without permission from Avraham? If I made him the father over these nations. And then what happens? Avraham, true to his name, immediately approaches God. And he starts protecting, defending the people of Sodom and Amorah. And thus, the title, Pray for Evil. Because the verse clearly says that they were Anashim Ra'im. They were evil people. So what happens here? First of all, the entire scene is very interesting. Because if you think about what was their evil versus what was Avram's virtue, you'll see that they were exactly the light and the shadow. Avram was known for what? Chesed, kindness. What was the evil of Sodom and Amorah? Was that they would kill people who fed travelers. The verse clearly tells us that Sodom was like the garden of God. That's how beautiful it was. That's how prosperous it was. That's how great it was in agriculture and all. And they didn't want to create a welfare system. Don't come here. We have our own. And therefore, they were the exact opposite of Abraham. When the verse says that the screams of Sodom have reached me, God speaking, we actually hear that what happened, they found a girl that actually did feed a traveler and they punished her by smearing her body with honey and hanging her for the beast to sting to death. So they were the exact polar opposite of everything that Avram stood for. Avram stood for kindness. And what do they stand for? The exact opposite. So appreciate the picture of what's going on here. Avram Avinu is standing here and praying when God's saying that in my just ways, I have decided that the time has come to eradicate these evil people who is standing there arguing with God mind you he argues with chutzpah will the God of justice how could you do such a thing to kill the good with the evil he actually approaches with, uh, with chutzpah he's questioning God will you do this heaven forbid that you should do this 
So this entire story in itself is amazing. You know, it's one thing if I champion a certain cause and someone else has an evil streak, but it isn't about the cause that I champion. I'm championing for whatever it may be, uh, orphans, and he's nasty in other areas. He's, he's got tax evasion issues. So my defending him, if I'm a just person in itself, would be questionable. What, what are you doing? You, you stand for justice. What this man did was wrong. But that wouldn't be such a, a spectacle as if this guy was caught harming orphans. So think what would happen here. I dedicated my entire life and passion championing the cause of, of orphans, and here comes a guy who what he did was the worst things possible to orphans. You would not catch me defending him. It just wouldn't happen. That would be like uh, PETA defending uh, uh, laboratories that are testing on rats. It just doesn't happen. And that's exactly what Avram did. Avram is taking a stand, and a chutzpah stand, and a strong stand, and he's actually fighting and praying with God to protect who? The people that were the polar opposite. What they are guilty of is the exact thing that Avram Avinu fought for. I'm emphasizing this point just to understand how important it is to be able to try to find zikhut, try to find some type of merit, not with people that don't mess with your baby, quote-unquote, but even people that mess with your very, they, they, they're standing against what you believe in, what you fight for. Even such people, we need to know where this concept is. Another note I want to make before I get into the guts of this class is the following. You know, it's very interesting that Israel, throughout all the problems we have in the Middle East, Israel never blanket bombs. Never. Other countries to protect their soldiers do that. They're not going to go knocking from door to door. They're just going to protect their soldiers. And to protect the soldiers, sometimes innocent people need to get killed. And nevertheless, you'll always find that what do our brothers and sisters do? We've lost soldiers because they were in Gaza knocking from door to door. Understand the approach that Abraham embedded within his offspring. That we don't blanket kill. Someone who is a terrorist and has bombed buses and is plotting to future bomb buses, such a person will have to be taken out. But we're not going to blow up the house that he's in because there are other people in there. One of the marks that the people of the world always know whether Israel claims responsibility or not, they'll always know Israel was the fingerprint of it, is very simple. They'll walk into the house, kill the terrorists, and not even kill the two women that are standing right with him. See how careful Avram embedded within us. Will the righteous die with the evil? That's a trademark of Abraham's children. That's a trademark of our people in Israel till this very day. But with that said, let's move on to the class now. What's going on here?
why is Abraham praying for these people? You would expect Abraham to tell God, it's about time you're going to do something about this. Number one. Number two, what is this whole bargaining? If there's 50 people amongst, or if there's 45 people, or if there's 40 people, or if there's, right, he's going down. And what's this all about? So Rashi tells us. Rashi tells us that there were five krachim, five cities. And what happens here? He's asking if there's a minyan, if there's a quorum of righteous people, the number 10 in Judaism is a completion. So if we have a complete number, until this very day when Maimonides talks about the definition of how many people live in a city, what makes a city a city and not a, a little uh, grouping? And the answer is one of the things you have to have there is 10 people that sit and learn. We call it kolel. So this number 10, when you have a minion of righteous people, not only do they protect themselves, but the quorum actually puts a shield of merit upon the entire city. And that's what he's praying for. So if there's 10 righteous people in each city, will you save all five? If there's only 45, so we have nine in each, will you, Hashem, be what they call in Yiddish the center? Will you be the 10th one to the minion? And God agrees. And then he starts going down. If you only have 40, can we save four of cities? If you only have 30, can we save three cities? If you only have 20, can we save two cities? If you only have 10, can we save 10 cities? What is this? What is going on here? The most important question I have to present to you is that every story in the Torah, you understand that Avram Avinu had many stories that didn't even make it into the Torah. One of the interesting ones that's only hinted in the verse that Haran died upon his father's lifetime is there's a hint that Avraham was thrown into the, the, burning, the fiery furnace when he refused to bow to Nimrod. But you notice that that story that all of us know, it didn't make it into the Torah. There are many other stories that didn't make it into the Torah. We have Avraham, a young man. We have Avraham, 75. We have Avraham between 75 and 99, a couple of stories. Right? And then we have another story at 99. Then we have another story at 137. So what's going on here? So certain stories make it into the Torah and certain stories didn't make it into the written law. They're only given down through tradition which we call the oral law. So you understand that the stories that make it into the written law are there for one specific reason. Because the Torah, the word Torah comes from the word Hora'ah. The word Hora'ah means a lesson. And that's what we're taught, Maaseh Avot Siman Lebanim. The actions of the Avot, of our patriarchs and matriarchs, is here to be a signpost for the children. So if there's a story in the Torah, what I need to ask myself is, what does this story have to do with me? What does it have to do with me on the most personal level? And when I say the most personal level, I want to refer to a famous teaching. Olam katan adam. The small world is the human. And that's why you'll find the teachings of Hasidus over and over again. There's a Pharaoh within each of us. There's a Moses within each of us. There's an Abraham within each of us. Every one of these stories have to be, every part of it is within us. Because if it's in the macroscopic world, it's in the microscopic world. Who is the microscopic world? Me. You. So when we read a story about Sodom and Avram praying for Sodom, and the way he prays, the bargaining that he does here, he doesn't ask God to forgive. When Moses asked God to forgive for the golden calf, he could have pulled the same trick. 
the entire tribe of Levi, and not one woman throughout the entire nation bowed to the golden calf. Why didn't he pull off Abraham's trick? Will you not save them all because of the Levites? More than a minion. Will you not save every single home because the woman in the home did not bow to the golden calf? He didn't do that. Avram used a specific technique. And there's a reason for it. And more importantly, there's a lesson that we need to take from this. So the biggest question on the table is, what am I supposed to take out of this story of Sodom, Amora, Avraham, Avram's conversation with God? And the specific tactics he used in his request. To understand this, I want to tell you that I personally stood at this Fabrengen of the Rebbe Blessed Memory. I remember it vividly. I was standing there, the Rebbe was talking about a certain concept which we're about to introduce, and the Rebbe all of a sudden gave like a smile chuckle. And the Rebbe said, Nisha not that we want to start up and instigate King David, but however, the teachings do clearly state that concerning the righteousness of King David, King David, what do we say? What does he say in Tehillim? And our sages say, why is Libi Chalal Bikirbi? It's quoted in the beginning of Tanya. That means that the verse says that my heart is dead within me. And the Gemara explains, why is it dead within me? Because he fasted until he killed his Yitzhara. So he's talking about his left side of the heart. The left side of the heart where there's the blood, the passion. That is the Yitzhara. And he said, I killed my Yitzhara. Then the Rebbe went on to explain, and we say this every day in davening, by Vayevarech David, what do we say by the end? When it comes to Avram Avinu, umatsata levavo neman lefanecha. And he found his heart trustworthy. And the Yershalmi, there's two Talmuds. There's the Babylonian Talmud and there's Jerusalem Talmud. The Jerusalem Talmud emphasizes the word levavo and says like this. When you have one vet, it means one inclination. When you have two vets, it's two inclinations. You'll sometimes say lev, and sometimes you say levav. By an angel, you'll never use levav, because an angel does not have a yetzahara. He doesn't have, the it doesn't have an evil inclination. However, by the human, it has an evil inclination. So here the Rebbe says that David Melech was a tzaddik, because the definition of a tzaddik is that you knocked out your yetzahara. And when he says, what does that mean? That my heart is dead within me. And what does it mean my heart is dead within me? It means he killed his Yetzirah. However, by Avram Avinu, it doesn't say his heart is dead. Quite the contrary. Both sides of his heart. That means his good inclination and his evil inclination was trustworthy to Hashem. I want to introduce one more concept and then we're going to get to the heart of the class. The difference between King David and the difference between him and, and Avraham is actually a very deep teaching in Hasidus that there's two types of services to God. One is called Iskafia, subordination, and one is called Ishapcha, which is transformation. The work of Iskafia is I want, I want, I really want, but I'm not going to do it. You always hear me 
um, um, quoting the language of recovery. In recovery, that's called white knuckling it. I want to take a drink. I want to smoke up. I want to do a line. I want to. I haven't been recovered. It hasn't been lifted from me. But as much as I want to, I'm going to white knuckle it. White knuckle it is make your fists really tight. You'll see your knuckles turning white. That's what it means. And then you have to immediately do the tools. Call up, do something, run away. So there's no transformation. There's no recovery. But there's a skafia. It's skafia. In the works of Chassidus, it simply talks about it as, forgive my vernacular, as we say, a bat out of hell. The previous Rebbe says, in the work of Sur Merah, running away from evil, anything works. In doing a mitzvah, you have to do it correct. In running away from evil, whatever it works. Get onto your iPod, go, go get an ice cream, go, go binge out on chocolate, whatever it takes, run away. So you're not weakening the evil, you're just forcing it not to be able to conquer you. That is Iskafia, and that for tonight is the conversation of Elibi Chalal Bikirbi. My heart is dead within me. Here it is looking the Yitzhara face to face, eye to eye, and say, You are not a true existence. You're only here to tempt me, and I will not give in. How can we not give in? The Yitzhara bottom line is stronger than us. The Talmud clearly says, If God would not help us, we would be helpless in the face of the Yitzhara. There's a story at the end of the Gemara in Tainus, I believe, which talks about Hashem giving permission to the Yitzhara to mess with Rabbi Akiva. And then the last minute he stopped him. Hashem stopped the Yitzhara. And the Yitzhara turned to Rabbi Akiva and said, If God wouldn't have stopped me, I would leave you here like a sieve full of holes. And he tempted him with sexual stuff. This is the great Rabbi Akiva. We're not talking about, uh, you know, Joey. So the Yitzhahara, we're talking about here, the Yitzhahara is, is the first step is iskafia, subordination. Just stop him. What's the second step? The second step is transformation. And that's the story of Rabbi of Avram Avinu. Now let's explain what the word levavo is, because the Talmud clearly says there are certain traits that the Yitzhahara uses. Anger is a biggie. Yitzhahara loves anger. It's the greatest way to pull a person out of their comfort zone and get them to do the things they would never do. Fear, anxiety, love, lust, passion. These are tools that the Yitzhahara loves. That's what makes people sin. So the Talmud tells us, you can use these things to serve God. Fear and love, definitely. It's a mitzvah in the Torah. And God your Lord you shall fear. Love God your Lord. Passion, it says clearly, do not pray. It's in Pirkei Avot. Don't pray mechanically. What does it mean don't pray mechanically? It means pray with passion. So all these things could be used. And that's what Avram Avinu did. So with all these introductions, let's get to the program. I'm going to suggest to you
that what Avraham Avinu is talking about on a personal level, what Avraham Avinu is talking about is that we all, as I mentioned to you, we all have traits. And to be able to understand this, I'm going to introduce to you step four in the 12-step program for addiction recovery. Step four is to make a fearless search and inventory of all your moral defects. That's what it is. So it's not an alchet list. I want to be very clear. Many people think it's an alchet list. You write down everything you've ever done wrong. No. We're not looking for a confession of all your past sins. What we're looking for is if you look into the events that took place and you have to specifically point out what is the moral defect. So your question is that he or she did whatever they did. But what caused me to react in this inappropriate way? For example, he or she did this to me and it made me insecure. And once I became insecure, I behaved inappropriately. So the moral defect here is insecurity. I'll just give you an example. And so forth and so on. Now let's get to the conversation here. When you talk about step number four, one of the most important things to realize is, what is a moral defect? Let's define the word moral defect. A moral defect is a trait that has become immoral. Let's go back to my friend Joey that had Colin laughing. You'll soon tell me who Joey is. But let's talk about Joey. So Joey has a problem. Joey is an amazing, passionate person. But because he's, in a, passionate, he's a passionate person, what takes place? He gets into trouble. The slip from passion to lust, to crossing a line you shouldn't cross, usually is not a very long walk. So what happens here? It comes to a point where this Joey is so frustrated that he is so passionate. He is so full of animosity, self-loathing. He feels so cursed by God. Why did you have to make me so Latin, hot-blooded, passionate? Why can't I be like Tommy, who's got the passion and heat of a beetle? Why do I have to be so, why do I always have to become a flame? And it always starts with good. The passion is always good. But the lines become so confusing, the borders and everything. I love to be like Tommy. Wakes up in the morning, doesn't even know what heat feels like. He's just straight. Gets up, Dobbins. I don't want to mention a name because I'm being recorded. But we used to joke about uh, my classmate. We used to joke about a certain Rosh Yeshiva. Put him in a closet. Give him, then you didn't have internet. Give him the Talmud. And together with the Talmud, every week, Stick it a new carton of cigarettes, a new six-pack of Coca-Cola, and he is in heaven. That's all. I, I've never seen him become passionate, angry, lustful. It just doesn't happen with him. Just put him in the closet. That's all. Give him his Talmud, give him his Coca-Cola, give him his cigarettes, and he was in heaven. And there were times that the more passionate of us, which paid the price of passion, would think to ourselves, why am I so cursed? Why can't I be just like him? But then there's another secret. The true secret is that most people who are passionate would rather be dead 
than be like him. Because to be without passion is to be dead for a passionate person. So there's this whole confusion in the head. My passion is my curse, but I'd rather be dead without my curse. Not because I like the trouble that passion gets me into. Not because I love crossing the line between love and lust. Not because I love crossing the line between caring and selfish lusting. That's not what we're talking about here. But to me, life without passion just isn't worth it. If there isn't a beautiful, intense experience for Yom Kippur, if I just did everything right, I said every word, I even said the whole Tehillim, everything was beautiful, I'd feel dead. Because Yom Kippur isn't about doing everything right to a passionate person. It's about feeling it, the intensity, the moment, the awe, the love, the closeness, the intimate the feeling of guilt, well, all of it. That's what Yom Kippur is all about. <laughs> I'll tell you a cute story on the topic of passion. It's a true story. There was a chassid who was married to a woman who never, the woman passed away young. After the shiva, in the olden days, especially in the shtetl, and everyone lived together, it was very common that the widower would marry the dead woman's sister because it just made sense. You can't marry two sisters while they're both alive. But after his wife passed away, I mean, who's the one who knows the kids? Who's the one that's the same blood? Who's the one that the kids anyway grew up with Tia? So it made sense. So after the whole shiva and after the process, he had little kids. He, uh, he, needed, he needed help. He needed a woman in the house. So he asked his father-in-law, can I have your other daughter's hand in marriage? He said, absolutely not. The chassid was offended. Did I ever mistreat your other daughter? Did I ever do anything wrong? He says, no. No, absolutely not. You're actually a great husband. So then why are you refusing me your other daughter's hand? He said like this. I watched you by the funeral. You did not make one mistake. You can't have my second daughter's hand. The beauty of what he said to him. How could you have not have been so distraught to have lost your head and made some mistake? So you were in control, right? And of course in Chabad, that should be a beautiful thing. Chabad is wisdom, understanding, knowledge. Mind over matter, even in the deepest pains. But he said, that's all beautiful. But my daughter, you're not going to marry. That won't happen no more. So you understand that in the world of Hasidim, passion, love, to the point of, of, of confusion, inappropriate moments. Obviously, another rabbi or another one of his friends would have run over him and said, no, 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 this is, you're at a funeral, you can't do this now. Whatever it may be, some mistake. But the point that he didn't have passion to the point of confusion, the pain blinding him for no, what is halachically right to do? My daughter, my other daughter, you won't have. So there are these, the definition of a moral defect is a gift and talent from God that has gone wild and become immoral. It's become the defect. But understand that every single moral trait emotion, habitual pattern, anything that you have, your inclinations are gifts from God. 
However, when they're not controlled, when we don't have our mind over matter, when we don't have our mind limiting, directing, controlling our emotions, our traits, then they become a curse. Then instead of being the wind under our wings, they actually become an, our intolerable prison. And one of the greatest examples, which I've mentioned before, is with artists. An artist of any sort that's just beyond the average gift and talent and passion, connection, how important it is for them to be able to control so that it doesn't become their absolute curse. We've seen this happen with musicians, we've seen this happen with writers, we've seen this happen with painters. So the definition of a moral defect is a gift from God which was uncontrolled and now became a defect, a prison, one that is destroying our lives. So all of a sudden what happens? The very gift from God becomes the ultimate curse which makes us feel that God doesn't love us. And this will happen on almost every single level. From the gift of physical beauty, which I've seen more than once become the curse of the woman who feels trapped in it, to the gift of art, to the gift of business talent. You have that. There are people who are so methodological that they hate themselves for it because it's interfering with their relationships. A honeymoon has to be planned as a tax deduction. So honey, I'm sorry, we're going to have to go in June, not the week after our wedding. There are people that are like that and they just can't help it. And they hate themselves for it. So when we talk about moral defects, we're talking about gifts of God and not just any gift. It is your specific gift. It is the gift that makes you unique. It is the very gift which is the reason why you're in this world because no one has that unique gift the way you have it. Now let's go to Avram Avinu's conversation. We're going to, to, just for tonight, we're going to experience the people of Sodom as our moral defects. So let's really do this for a moment. Let's really do this. Simply close your eyes and think of that one specific trait which once upon a time you were proud of, you realize it made you special, and then somewhere along the line it has become your ultimate curse. Really. Do that for a moment. Don't close your eyes, look down, whatever works for you. But just think for a moment because every single one of us in this room was given a unique gift. It may be physical, intellectual, emotional. It may be a trait. It may be something you're just naturally good at. If you ever read the book Blink, something that we just, it's just a gift in us. So take a moment. Now that this gift 
has become your ultimate curse to the point where the verse calls it the evil people of Sodom. And God has decided it is time to destroy, eliminate this gift. Now let's hear of Ramavino's conversation with God. God, if there's even 50, because of five different gifts, so let's go down to the number 10. If there's even 10 times that this individual used their gift in a moral way, in a good way, in a caring way, can't we save this person's talent? Hear the question that God says, will you, uh, that Avraham Avinu says, will you kill the good with the evil? I want you to hear this question in the following format. God, will you throw out the baby with the bathwater? There's a reason why you gave them this gift. And it is true. They're egocentric, insecure, pain, passion, lust. It drove them to a point where this gift has now become their ultimate point of evil. It has become immoral. They are using it in the worst ways possible. But however, God, wasn't there 10 times that they used it the right way? Didn't they use their charm to help someone and not just to flirt with someone? Didn't they use a flirt to put a smile on a troubled woman's face and not just to pursue lustful behaviors? And if they did do this, so if they did it 10 times, they'll be able to do it again. So God, let me ask you again. Do you really want to eliminate and wipe out this person's gift that you gave him? This is how I hear the question in this week's Parsha. This is how I see the entire conversation of Abraham being actually what would later become step four in the 12-step recovery program. Because without making a really fearless inventory, one second, have I ever really asked myself, what is my gifts? Most of us don't do that. We just don't ask ourselves what our gift is. As a little child, they called us cute for it. Eventually, we learned to abuse it. And eventually, it abused no one but ourselves. And now here, Avram Avinu, fight for you, for me, for these very gifts. Like we said before, it was like the Gan Hashem. Sedom was like the Garden of God. It was so beautiful. It was all the gifts that you can ever ask for. That's what God gave us. Each and every one of us in this room in a total different arena, in a total different format. We each have one beautiful piece of the Garden of God. And it was given to us so that we can fulfill our mission, that we should be able to get through life. And at some point, instead of it being a gift, it became a swinging bat. 
Eventually that bat turned into a set of nunchucks. And if any of you ever practice with nunchucks and you don't know what you're doing, you'll know that the only person who's going to get hurt is who? You. And Abraham's praying. Now understand the beauty of the difference between King David and Abraham. King David's answer is, we've got to kill it. God, empower me to completely wipe out these defects that have destroyed my life. Avram Avinu says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Do that and you're throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Let's go back to Joey. What happens if Joey's passion dies? Correct me if I pronounce the word wrong. But have any of you ever heard a, an operation called lumbotomy? Lobotomy, that's what it's called. So what is that operation, right? They go up through the front lobe, they take it out because that's the emotions, right? So they used to do it for people that were dangerously ill. Today it's actually inhumane and they stopped it. But what that surgery did was it destroyed nothing of the person other than his emotional reaction. So imagine the person walking around and this person is without emotion. Always a kind of transparent, naked, pale smile on the face. I, I, I grew up with such a person. Genius, scholarly, righteous, pious, but emotionless. Is that what Joey wants to be? Is that what Joey's asking God? God, I'm done with this stuff. I am done with the passion. It took me out so many times. I can't live with it. I've destroyed my family. I've destroyed my business. I've destroyed my life. I can't be in the community no more. All because of what? Because of this curse you placed upon me called passion. So God, that's it. I'm going to sleep now. By the time I wake up, I want to have the surgery done. Is that what Joey really wants? He thinks he wants that. He definitely thinks he wants that because just the bare thought of passion is too painful. He became a sodomite. What the Torah calls what? Anashim Ra'im. But Avraham Avinu says, whoa, stop right here. Can we dissect? Can we go back in time where this made you cute? where this was your ammo to accomplish what you needed to accomplish before you started abusing it? Can we go back to the point where it was a pure gift from God? That's the question of Rambin was asking. And even if it's a person who never used his talent for the right thing, and again, I want to just clearly draw and paint for you the painful picture of what we're talking about. So now we have Joey who grew up in an absolutely abusive and dysfunctional family. Fathers are drunk. Mother is codependence par excellence. And he needed this gift in an abusive way 
to be able to protect himself. So he used it to manipulate situations just so that he won't get beaten again by his drunk dad. Just that he won't become the western wall of his mother once again wailing everything to him. He's a poor little child. He can't deal with this. So this very gift that God gave him is actually what saved his life as a child. He never even knew how to use it as a divine pure gift. For him, this was survival. Even such a person, God tells Abraham tells God, in your realm, God, our sages say, potential does not lack actual. Only in our world is potential worthless until it becomes actual. Talk to me about a person who has talents, has done nothing, I'll tell you, what a shame. But in God's world, potential and actual are one and the same. So God, Abraham tells God, God, you see what Joey doesn't see. Maybe Joey, unfortunately, because of whatever reason, he was born into a horrible, abusive, dysfunctional, dangerous family. So to him, the minute he realized he had the gift, he used it as a shield and a sword. He had to. He would be dead if not. But you know that potential does not lack actual. And you know with the right nourishing and the right caring, divine providence bringing him to the right places, to the right people, you know that there's a baby in that bathwater. And again, Abraham asks God, will you throw out the baby with the bathwater? So guys, let's close it up and make it practical to us. I asked you before to close your eyes. I asked you before to take one thing. I'm assuming that we're, none of us are under Barabbat Mitzvah, and therefore we all know clearly what gift God gave us and how we feel that it became a curse to the point where we don't even remember it ever being a gift. That's how bad things get. I've asked you to identify that. Once you've identified that specific gift that's turned into your greatest nightmare of a curse, now I want you to become Avraham. I want you to defend your gift. And the only way you'll be able to do that is if you can look through the lenses of Avraham. Because for most of us, we don't even know how to look through those lenses no more. We see nothing but pain and suffering because it is quality, trade, gift, whatever it is. Now let's back up. Let's hear Avraham battle for these moral defects. Let's once again embrace what made us feel so uniquely precious and different as a child. Different in a good way. I am talking about on all levels. I actually am reading a book that someone gave me, which uh, the line just shook me up. In the book, it's a fiction book, a novel. But in the novel it says like this. They're quoting one of the characters. As the French say, there's no such thing as an ugly woman. There's only a lazy woman. That shook me up. That shook me up. Because we're not just talking about the physical beauty of a woman. If you think about it in the bigger picture, it's talking about greater things here. So let's go back to Avramavino. Let's go back to Avramavino. Let's hear him tell that to God. 
there's no such thing as an ugly woman. There's only a lazy woman. There's no such thing as a bad, a bad trait that you placed in mankind. There's only a lazy person. And therefore the trait went wild. It went cuckoo. And therefore became immoral. And it became abusive. And it became the greatest curse. Not because the trait is ugly, but because the master of the trait was lazy. So let's sit down and take out the biggest curse in our lives. The biggest curse in our lives. The one thing that if we wish we could, we wouldn't have it. Do we wish that we can just take a knife and cut it off? Let's go back to that one. And let's start arguing the way Avram argued. Let's see how this curse we can really start peeling off the filthy layers and start seeing that beneath it lies a gift. It's what always made me feel warm about myself. It's what always made me feel secure. It's what always made me feel special. It's the way I knew how to get what I wanted to get in a holy way. It's the way I got things done way before I abused it, way before I demoralized it. Have the conversation, guys. Have the conversation with yourself. Find it, face it, and have the conversation. And then, slowly but surely, we'll learn how to take the baby out of the bathwater and help it grow. People, thank you.